I denied that I had a problem basically until the day that I needed to go and see uh, a psychologist and get a diagnosis. Um, and looking back, like I was a very light uh, person, to put it that way. And um, I guess some of the behaviors, I used to throw a lot of my food away, like at school. I was still in, in high school, obviously, when this was happening. So when a lot of my friends weren't watching, I would go over to the bin and just tip some stuff into the bin. Um, and the fact that I was hiding it from my friends but still in denial that there was anything wrong, I guess, is a, a, a clear warning sign. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. I. Take a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. In this episode, we're talking to Josh Wiggins, who is a well-educated, well-spoken and all-round likeable Aussie bloke. He's got a long list of health and well-being qualifications, including diet and nutrition, strength and conditioning and mental performance. And he's currently studying his master's in science. Still, he has come across as humble and dishes out words of encouragement all through this chat that come from a place of wisdom and experience. When Josh was a teenager, some external stresses manifested in him establishing an unhealthy relationship with food and exercise. Here in 2020, men in general are becoming way more comfortable than they used to be in discussing their own mental ill health, which personally makes me incredibly happy to see. And we're seeing men be heard and supported in an increasingly encouraging way. There are... However, some pockets of symptoms and diagnoses that would benefit from having a light shone on them even more to reduce the stigma. And one of those areas is body image. So we're very grateful for Josh for sharing his story and his experiences with anorexia nervosa as a teenager. Now at 27 years old, married and with a young son, Josh believes we can harness the characteristics of our mental ill health condition. For him, it was determination and discipline and reverse the symptoms from being debilitating habits to superpowers. There are some mild trigger warnings around body image and food control. So if this is triggering for you, I would encourage you to pause and wait until you're ready to listen or perhaps listen to the episode with a trusted person. As always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time. We are all on the journey. Josh, what does mental health mean to you, mate? Mental health to me is uh, is about a state of balance. So when we are mentally healthy, I think that we're in a state of balance. So we're not as uh, affected by external events as we might be if we're out of that state of balance. So to be mm. mentally unhealthy, the opposite of mental health would be to be so reliant upon external environment and circumstances to dictate your own mood. So when we're mentally healthy, mm. I think we can conjure our own mood internally and be more at, um, at peace with whatever's going on around you. Yeah, I love that term that you use there around balance. Like for me, mental health is about coping and I think coping and balance are almost synonyms. Um, yep. When 
Describe times in your life where you feel you've been most balanced, either like all the way from childhood through to adulthood. Can you can you think of any occasions where you felt most balanced? Yeah, I think um, you feel balanced when you're in almost a state of flow. So when you're doing something that you enjoy, when you're surrounded by people that you really like, um, or when you just feel quiet but you're happy to be quiet, you know, it might be outside, just relaxing, meditating, those sorts of states. Um, I think doing something that you love or that you're passionate about or, yeah, just living in the actual moment itself rather than thinking about the past or the future, I think that's when I feel most balanced or mentally healthy. So is that when, when you feel balanced or when you, when you think other people feel balanced? As that's in, tell me, tell, me about, tell me about specific times in your life where you feel balanced. So I guess specifically um, as it relates to lately, just hanging out with my son. So I have a two-year-old son and if we go to the beach or we're playing at the park, I'm able to be present and in the moment. I'm not thinking about anything that I have to do work or, or uni related or anything financial. I'm just able to be present and there. I think um, growing up my childhood, I played like three different sports. So anytime that I was on a sporting field, um, there was definitely no stress. It was you had to be in the moment or you were you're not playing too well. So <laughs> I think, um, yeah, that would be two examples, specific examples for me. So your kids in sport are obviously two things that's really close to you, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, what sports did you play growing up? Uh, So rugby league, rugby union and gridiron. So they're probably my three big ones. Uh, A lot of my friends played AFL and soccer, but I could not kick a ball, so I I stuck with the other sports. Um, Yeah, full contact sports, eh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely loved it. I tried skating and surfing and bodyboarding and they were fun, but not so much for me. Um, so, yeah, the on-the-field contact sports were, were definitely my thing. Rugby league or rugby union, tell me, what's your favourite? I'd have to say rugby Ooh. league. Yeah, I'd have to say rugby league. I think the, the speed of the game uh, with rugby union, I can't really watch it. There's, again, too much kicking for me. Um, yeah, yeah. It needs it needs to be fast, and and I can follow along with rugby league. What position did you play in rugby league? Uh, five eight and fullback were my two positions. Wow, yeah. so skillful and good at defence. Very uh, good. I'll leave that up to <laughs> <laughs> leave that up to everyone else to judge. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's awesome, mate. So, so what about what about this? Because it's obviously there's a theme there between the sports that you were playing, which is they're high they're high contact. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie. Um, wh- what about it to you was the part that really made you feel alive? I think as you you just stated the camaraderie, being able to do it with friends. Obviously, growing up, a lot of the people that you play sport with are the same people that you're in class with, and class is not always the the most social environment or at least it shouldn't be for the teacher. There is some learning that's happening there, but on the field you can really be yourself Um, and you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for other people. And I really like the aspect of sport that you put in so much self work and you see it reflected in that team environment. So your own self dedication and hard work benefits everybody. Um, So I really like that about sport. Yeah. And, um, something about using your your body in a skillful way is uh, I find quite a majestic feeling when everything's just, uh, to use your word before, flowing. Um, yep. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm very into 
martial arts and I, I watch a lot of boxing and UFC and even though it is so contact heavy, I, you can really see the artistic side to that. Is that how you viewed football in that there was beyond just the, the biff and the boof? Yeah, definitely. I think so much of the actual game of football is not played on the field. It's played with what you are doing behind the scenes. If you really like boxing, I know Muhammad Ali said that all of the work is done when he's not dancing underneath the lights. The lights is just what you see, but it's the, the hours or weeks and months of dedication and hard work that goes into stepping into the ring or, or playing on the field. Um, so, yeah, I think there's so much skill and dedication and um, self reflection that's needed to really succeed in in any sport and I guess that's for any field but when we're talking about sport um, and then what's on the field is just the the demonstration of that. And so you've you've grown up in in Australia um, specifically in in New South Wales uh, between Sydney and the Central Coast is that right? Yeah yeah so on the Central Coast I've lived here my whole life so 27 years now on the Central Coast yeah. Amazing. And um, growing up, how, how do you think people would describe you as a, as a younger kid? What, how would they, what words would they use? If you could sum it up in three words, it would probably be never sit still. Um, that was me, <laughs> me growing up. So I always wanted to be outside um, playing at the park or, or kicking a football or whatever. I had two older brothers. So um, my middle brother, like the next oldest brother, uh, whatever he was doing, I would be, I guess, his shadow. Um, so, yeah, following him usually at the park or playing football, not so much dedicated to reading or studying at that time. Um, yeah, so I would say never sit still would be a good um, term growing up. I didn't really let a lot of things affect me. Like I don't think I was a very emotional child, maybe maybe suppressed emotional child, but I think I was um, pretty much happy to just go with the flow or I guess my life was go with the flow but mostly spent outdoors. And you obviously looked up to your older bro, which is awesome to have someone like that, a role model in your life. Where, with, with the people that you looked up to, were they also not um, outwardly emotional? Yeah, I would say like I grew up with a, a single mum and two older brothers um, and I would say that a lot of it, looking back on it now, a lot of it was present a strong image rather than maybe how you feel internally. So I think there was a lot of withheld emotion in my house, but we all felt, I guess, as the men of the house, the three of us, that we had to stay strong for our mum. And I think now looking back, our mum felt like she had to stay strong for us as well. So I think, yeah, I think that we all were pretty internal with our emotional state and we reflected a very happy exterior. Mm. All, all with beautiful intent though, as you just said, everyone was just trying to look after each other, but in the meantime might not have been living fully authentically or even causing damage to yourself unnecessarily if um, if everyone just knew how much they, they cared and wanted to be vulnerable. And I know exactly. many of us at times want to be strong for other people, but if, if, if they were only told, uh, I'm only being strong for you so that you feel good, and if being strong for me is making you feel bad, then we, you know, let's let's come together and work on something more sustainable. Hey, definitely. I think authenticity is is much more sustainable than presenting a facade. Yeah. So when um, 
you've obviously had your your own experience with with mental health. Uh, it sounds like some really positive occasions, like with your child um, and with sport, and some others that have at times been more challenging. Can you talk me through? kind of the, the start of when things started to become more challenging, what did you start to notice in yourself? Yeah, definitely. So uh, it was during my teenage years, probably when I was 14 or 15, that things started to become a, a little bit more challenging. And I think um, it might have been bottled up in suppressed emotions just for too long, um, being in a hormonally charged environment and under the stress of I actually have to study now so I can go and, and get a job and do something. So I think it was... Um, just that paradigm shift in my life where I'd gone from just being the, the boy that could get away with just playing outside all the time to embodying some, I've got to be a real person now and, and be a real boy to, to quote Pinocchio and actually do <laughs> something. So I think um, that shift happened at about 14 or 15 where I just started to embody some of the stresses and allow some of the stresses that had been inside me to, to start to come up and, and ultimately manifest in, what was diagnosed as anorexia nervosa um, and uh, exercise addiction as well. Wow. I'm, I'm really honoured that we are able to chat about this today. I think that uh, body dysmorphia, if you want to put a science term on it, but self-image issues isn't discussed enough as blokes. Uh, I, I massively take my hat off to you and I'm really grateful for, for you spending time with us today. So... Talk to me about the, the the first little while of of realizing something wasn't quite right. What what, what were some of the thoughts or behaviors you were doing to or others noticed in you when you're like, oh, I'm not feeling good or he's not okay? Well, I could say that denial was my first um, my first thought. I, I denied that I had a problem basically until the day that I needed to go and see uh, a psychologist and get a diagnosis. Um, and looking back, like I was a very light uh, person, to put it that way. And um, I guess some of the behaviors, I used to throw a lot of my food away, like at school. I was still in, in high school, obviously, when this was happening. So when a lot of my friends weren't watching, I would go over to the bin and just tip some stuff into the bin. Um, and the fact that I was hiding it from my friends but still in denial that there was anything wrong, I guess is a, a, a clear warning sign. Um yeah, so it started off with, with just simply not eating, um, hiding the fact that I wasn't eating from, from friends um, and family. So I used to wake up quite early in the morning and pretend that I'd already eaten a big breakfast so that when um, my mum would come out into the kitchen, I'd just be finishing off this meal. But really what I'd done is prepared a very little breakfast and waited for her to walk into the room just as I was finishing what, what you would assume was a really big meal. Um, so, yeah, I basically started developing a really unhealthy uh, habit around food and food control um, and just simply wasn't eating enough. And at the same time, um, because I was so into sports, I was trying to go to the gym every day to lift weights and actually wanted to put on weight, uh, put on muscle so I could be stronger to play football, but I wasn't putting any fuel in. I was actually taking away that fuel but doing all of the exercise, so essentially burning off more fuel and just, yeah, just never mm. replenishing it. So. I was over-exercising and under-eating and that would have gone on from the age of 14 right through to 17 before I actually realised this was a problem. Um, the other thing was that even though I was quite studious when I started to actually concentrate, I no longer had the energy to concentrate in class. So many times 
my teachers would have to wake me up during a lesson. Um, and around that age of 17, when I had the, the realization of what I've been doing to myself for so long was actually a, a teacher at my school called my mum and said, just letting you know that your son has fallen asleep in literally every class that we've had for like the last term, uh, whether it's the first period of the day, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth, doesn't matter what time of day it is. At first I thought he was just a tired teenager. Um, but the fact that he's doing it first thing in the morning or the afternoon, regardless of the time, I think that there's something wrong. I think he might need to see someone. Something's wrong, help. yeah. Yeah, so there was a few signs, a few warning signs that I was, again, in denial about thinking, no, no, I'm fine, like I'm just trying to be healthy or whatever. Um, but in actual fact, I was causing some some really bad damage to my body. Did people notice that you were significantly losing weight? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think it was obvious to my family, my direct family, but I went to an all boys high school. And again, we, we've spoken about, it's a little bit harder for, for men to talk about. I think it's also harder for men to recognize because it's not something that's openly spoken about. So not only do we not talk about it, but we're not educated enough about it to recognize problems in someone else. Had I been at a, and I'm only speculating, but had I been at a mixed gender school, I'm guessing that someone would have picked it up sooner. Yeah. But being in an all boys school, we're all tough. It's not a problem that men face. So we're not going to talk about it. Um, it was mostly my, my female teachers, if anyone that actually would mention, uh, I remember one of my teachers saying, look, you need to eat a steak. You're so pale. Like you need some iron or something. And I just sort of brushed it off as just something that a teacher would say. But so when these people started to kind of pick up on this, like the falling asleep in class, et cetera, what would your response be? Again, it would be um, one of denial and almost um, almost annoyance, like as if someone was trying to take control of, of my life and tell me how I needed to eat and how I needed to be. Um, so rather than recognizing it as, as helpful and, you know, concerned advice, I was looking at it as someone's trying to control me and my lifestyle habits. So I was kind of anti-anything. Yeah. Yeah, because when you were saying denial, I wasn't entirely sure if it was – I'm denying it to the outside world and I don't want anyone to know or if it's genuine denial from you, you you didn't think that there was a problem in what you were doing. I think I think both. I think the, the holistic definition of denial, I, I now that I reflect upon it, I think it's, you know, it's so obvious, it's clear as day what I was doing to myself was not healthy. But at the time I didn't, I honestly didn't think anything of it. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure many people can relate to that, which is this almost like a spell that comes over you. And I, I know for me, that was like OCD. You don't know why you're doing these things. People would say, you know, why are you touching this light switch? Why are you stepping this certain way? Why are you praying out loud? And I'm like, I don't know. I just yeah. have to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's it's good that you talk about that and I guess now that we're having this conversation that we've both had our own experiences that we can reflect upon um, what we were doing and it's I don't want to use the word comical but it is the fact that I was in denial about it and not not picking it up yeah hmm. it's almost like you don't want to go toward it because you know that if you lift the hood up that there might be some tangled wires under there or a broken cylinder that you just don't want to deal with because it's going to hurt, right? Absolutely. So it's easier just to pretend to yourself and to others that it's like, oh, it'll, it'll pass or 
there's no problem here. And I'm sure it would have been frustrating when people came and picked you up on it that not only were they, you know, in your mind taking away your sense of control but also pushing on a sore spot that you're doing your darndest to try and avoid. Exactly. No, I think you, you definitely hit the nail in the head with that one on the head. Yeah. So, so mate, when what, you said at 17 is when you started to be like, okay, something's going on here and you sought professional help. Was there like a, a climax point that became unlivable or? No, I think I actually had a really rapid transition into health. Um, I, there was someone at my local gym that I really respected and um, he took me under his wing essentially and I, I don't know what it was about him but there was something about this particular person. He was a, a naturopath and a dietitian that anything he said I listened to and I saw the effect, I guess you could say it was a, a climatic point, I saw the effect that my condition had upon my mum and that was that was really hard to think I was the source of this angst. As, as we spoke about before, our family had always tried to be strong for one another and I was now the person causing the most pain. Um, and I guess I didn't even look at it at the time as pain to myself. I looked at it as pain to my family, like I, what have I done? Um, but anyway, I met a, a health professional and listened to his advice and within the span of four months, I had doubled my body weight. By the time I turned 18, I was actually considered um, above average body weight. Um, that was in the span of four months. That was just from listening to someone and actually being like, I, I need to let go of control because what I'm doing, what I've been doing and trying for the last three years is not working. It's not functional and I actually need help and I'm now willing to receive help. And lo and behold, I allowed myself to receive the help and my body just did a full 360 and I, I felt amazing. So do you know, do you remember a moment where you saw, do you remember seeing your mum visibly upset and was there a point in time in your brain where you went, shit, something's got to change? Yeah, so I saw my mum visibly upset quite a lot, to be honest, especially um, probably from the age of 16 to 17. There was a lot of, um, you know, how could you do this to me type uh, interactions. So mum becoming very upset, very animated, screaming and crying, telling me that I was anorexic. Again, me not wanting to believe it, but seeing it was almost uh, anger. And I know that I guess she she meant the best for it. She wanted that to be enough to spark me to be healthy, but it actually just further fueled my own anxiety, my own stress, my own fear. And I think in that period of time, my condition was at its worst. So because of her constant accusation and stress and anxiety, I withdrew more and more and I stopped eating more and more. So there was lots of moments. I think the one that was the final one where I transitioned was when the teacher called my mum and we had an official diagnosis and, and I was like, well, I'm not going to let a diagnosis be my, my history. It might be my past, but it's not going to be, oh, sorry, it's not going to be my future. Um, so I was determined to not define myself by a condition, but to get healthy so that I could say, look, I've, I've beaten this. I'm, I'm healthy now. I'm a good son. I'm, everyone can be happy again. We can all sort of move forward. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the final straw was that teacher's phone call the same week as the psychologist's um, diagnosis and the effect that 
I guess the official diagnosis had on my mum, like all of her worry and stress and anxiety was actually, it was actually correct. She had diagnosed mm. it before I had actually been officially diagnosed. So I think that was the final straw. Um, that was the big turning point for me. What was it like for someone who, you know, you've mentioned control a few times, um, when someone like your mum, who obviously loves you more than anything, maybe was accidentally making it worse by saying things like, how could you do that to me, which further takes your control away. Like, well, what about me? What about my world, my control, my autonomy? Um, would that, it was that part of it hard for you when, when people were externalizing an issue that was all about the fact that you didn't have enough internal agency? That was the hardest part, absolutely. So I, I strongly believe that body dysmorphia is an external condition that you feel internally. And I think that that external influence only perpetuated the internal anxiety and, and desire for control. So the more that people pushed back on my need to be controlling the stronger that I clung to what I could, which was, was anything mm. I could. So I, I think that external environment very much fueled my internal desire to, to have control over something, just anything to, to stay afloat, I guess. Yeah. So often in life we can feel out of control and it might not even necessarily be a structural thing like school's busy or work's busy or uni's busy or whatever there might not just be an internal map to hold on to within your own self to answer the question, who am I? Or yeah. how am I making sense of the world? How do I make sense of my own emotions? How do I self-regulate? There's just no map. And so that lack of map brings up this feeling of chaos. And without the right guidance, we can look to unhealthy habits, whether it's a mental illness or addiction or otherwise, uh, to gain that missing link. That's and right. it's not until we get older and start to make sense of what we were actually compensating that we can go, oh, okay, well, now I know why I did that. There's less shame and there's actually, that might not be the best defense mechanism possible to deal with this lack of control, which I'm sure you've come to now, hey? Absolutely. And I think that judgment of self for having a condition makes things much worse. I think going yeah. from that feeling bad about being diagnosed with something and judging yourself for something, going from that to acknowledging it as being part of your reality, but it doesn't define who you are and that ultimately you can observe the thoughts that the condition puts into your head, but you do not have to act upon them. So going from that judgment of self for having a condition to recognizing it just as an unfortunate part of reality, um, but that it doesn't define you. I think that's a big shift. Yeah. And I want to get into some of the ways and things that you've found fundamental to your coping and your balance to use, to use your word. But just before we do, I want to kind of round, round out your experience by asking the million dollar question, which is, probably unanswerable and to be honest, redundant, but why, why do you think you were doing what you were doing? Obviously a lack of control, but, but why do you think that you felt a lack of control? Again, I think it's a, it's an external condition that you feel 
internally. So I don't know if that's that's the right answer, but I think my inability to handle the stress from an external environment had to manifest itself in some way. And mm. I'm not sure if I was predisposed to manifest it in a body dysmorphic condition. That's how it came out. So mm. while I can't answer why it was done in that sense, um, that's, that's just what happened, I guess, to me. That was my experience. And that's a good answer because sometimes there is no why. It just, it just is. Um, stress and or distress in stress in its traditional sense, like cognitive load or distress in its more conceptual sense of an unknown reason as to why you're feeling off can really manifest in different ways. But I just wasn't sure if I'm always interested to know if someone can put their finger on their why. Um, I, I can put my finger on a half a why, but yep. I can't put it on full. And I was wondering if you could get close to yours. I guess, I guess in a why, if you're asking why there was so much perceived stress, I could probably go a little bit more into that. And I think, I think it was absorbed, I want to say absorbed by osmosis, just in the household that I was brought up in. So a very, very great childhood, um, but an underlying sense of stress from the top down, so from my mum to my brothers. And I think whether... I think if you're constantly surrounded by a feeling of stress, an innate feeling of stress and a frequency of stress, I think you take it on. And mm. I think I, I guess, absorbed via osmosis everybody else's stress and I didn't understand it. I think um, I love my mum, but I think she is someone who is quite stressed all the time. It could be about the slightest thing or a large thing. So there's, there's no judgment there that everybody has a different ability to tolerate stress. But I think growing up, for it took 14 years for a condition to take hold of me. I think growing up for 14 years in an environment of stress as a sponge, eventually you fill up with stress and that sponge, when you squeeze it out, it, it, for me, when that sponge was squeezed out, it manifests in a, in a dysmorphic condition. So I think mm. just simply growing up, growing up in an environment of stress was enough. And I think it's important for people to understand that because a lot of people, I guess, would think, you have to have this direct trauma or this specific event that's going to then spark um, a, a mental illness. But I don't think it necessarily has to be like that. I think it can be just from an environmental prolonged, sustained period of time, an environmental stimulus can cause the same thing. And I think, again, going back to the why, if you judge yourself for ultimately having a condition that didn't spark from this traumatic event, then you're going to be more stressed. You're not a bad person from not having this one moment shape your life. Everybody yeah, I'm a huge, huge believer, huge believer in that. I mean, I harp on about this all the time that I believe a lot of suffering outside of genetics, suffering is caused by um, the environment and the environmental things that can go wrong uh, is what we would call trauma. But trauma has this brand of an episodic event like a bomb explosion. But that's just not true in its full definition. Trauma or um, environmental context that goes wrong can be the smallest things that over enough time duration can start to erode at your sense of coping. Um, 
that's that's the complex nature of of situations that that result in ill health and yeah i agree with you i think a lot of people if they end up growing up to have a mental ill health condition will look at nature and nurture and if there's no genetic component they go well what environmentally happened i grew up in a western country i had all the material attributes I'm not allowed to be stressed or upset or anxious or whatever it is. And that's just not true. Um, yep. And often it comes back to not feeling like your needs were fully cared for. And I love how you didn't blame your mom or throw her under the bus. You have a, an amazing sense of ownership in what you're saying. Um, and it sounds like you have a lot of empathy for your mom because she has her own story as well. And that, you know, at the end of the day, she loves you and was given it her best shot. So I think the environment is context, not, not necessarily causation. And it was definitely no one's intent and it's resulted in what it has. And you've transformed that into obviously one of your strongest assets as a human being. You seem like an amazing guy who probably wouldn't be who you are today without all those things happening. Exactly. I think, um, so I wrote a book a couple of years ago and the title of the book is Transmute Your Inner Demons. So in another word, turning your struggles into strengths. And I think with the uh, mental disability that I had, if you want to call it that, or body dysmorphia, there's a large element of control and obsessive nature. And those attributes alone applied to another context can actually be really helpful. So if you're able to, uh, I... I will say right. to the listeners, I don't, yeah, I don't believe this condition will ever leave me. I don't think we ever, uh, you know, fully detach from our condition. However, we can get control over the condition. So, as you said, became a little bit of a superpower. And in my final year of school, having slept all the way through most of schooling, <laughs> I, was the, I was the ducks of my school purely from that control aspect and that discipline aspect, just applying that to something that was actually going to benefit me. And then I've gone on to obviously further study and being able to apply that same formula. Um, so I think you can turn those struggles into a strength of yours when you learn to, to get a grasp of it and to learn that you are not your condition. You're an observer of the condition and you can either let it take control over you or you can detach from it in the sense that it no longer has power over you and you can now have power over it. So as much as I, you know, if I could go back in time and and the condi- and I had the choice that you would never get this condition, yeah, I'd probably take that choice. But now reflecting back, I'm almost glad that it happened to me because I have had the strength to turn it into a superpower and mm. I have not let it define me. So if, if it's the choice between me or someone else getting the condition, I'm glad that I was the one because I'm able to, to now use it to benefit myself and, and those that I work with amazingly mature mindset there and I agree and I hate the fact that I agree because had had you asked me in the middle of my worst days um yeah but if you get through this you'll be able to help others and it'll help you become a better person I would have been like I don't give a fuck take this away I would have been like do not care get this away from me there is no cost worth this amount of pain but you are absolutely right. When you when you are standing on the other side of it, you're like, I'm glad. And you 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 would say to yourself, there is no chance in the world I will ever say I'm glad for this, ever. 
And then eventually you do and you're like, damn, this universe thing is like really, <laughs> really wise and complex. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and I love hearing your sentiment. Like I'm really glad it happened to me because I've been out of, able to cope with it and, and transform it, transmute it. Um, I think that's very noble and, and stoic and just like how a child chooses its mother, maybe we choose our our own health path or destiny or suffering um, because it's meant to be. I'd like to think it's that way and at least. Um, I want to pick up on on the inflection point of your story and, and your the coach or the friend mentor at the gym seemed to play a huge role. What was it that they said or, or the way that they were that A, enabled you to trust them and B, open up to getting help? So surprise, surprise, it was sports related. Um, he had worked with some of the South Sydney Rabbitohs with nutrition um, and he had big muscles. So I was like, this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was pretty much it, to be honest. Like I, uh, I'll, I'll happily say his name, Shannon Brenton, is a, a well-renowned uh, nutritionist here in New South Wales. I think he might unfortunately be in Victoria at the moment. Um, but he has just such knowledge. And you know what? He was very direct. He wasn't trying to protect my emotions. He was honest. He, he just, the first time I ever met him, I was training with my dad at the gym and he said, you're training your son wrong. He's not, he shouldn't be training like that. If you want him to, to put on weight and be healthy, you got to totally change everything that he's doing. And at first I thought, who the fuck's this guy? And then again, yeah. looked at him, heard about his uh, work with the South Sydney Rabbitohs and thought, okay, he knows enough. Like I, my dream then was to be a professional sports star, even though I was very, uh, I was about the size of a sports star's arm. Um, mm. I thought I'm going to listen to this guy and after a couple of weeks, like he'd given me his number and I kind of tossed it to the side. After a couple of weeks, I contacted him and from the very first session, I think we only trained together maybe for about three or four weeks. It was the dietary advice that really helped. Um, but he at least showed me how to train in a manner that was productive for my goals. Um, so I had always gone to the gym and I think a lot of people do this and you feel like if you don't leave the gym covered in sweat, need to change your shirt, like instantly, you don't feel like you're limping out of the gym that you haven't had a productive session. He said, well, that's actually not the case at all. If you want to recover, you can't bury yourself in a hole so deep that you then have to fill it up for days and days and days. And if you do train like that, you need to eat enough to fill that hole sort of thing. So he kind of put things into perspective for me, taught me how the professionals were actually training and showed me how they were eating. And as I said, within four months, um, I was about 17 and a half. Before I turned 18, I had doubled in body weight. And I was still in what people would say is a healthy, lean shape. So I guess that speaks to how light I was prior to meeting him. And um, I'll, I'll forever be grateful for that time. That's the whole reason that I went and studied nutrition at university and became a trainer because I wanted to have the same influence for others that he had upon me. It was such a profound and paradigm-shifting moment of my life. And had I not worked with him, I don't know that I would have had the strength to get through what I was going through. And I I don't know where I would be right now. Well, we, we definitely thank him and the world owes him a debt of gratitude, that's for sure. <laughs> um, did he ever, out of interest, say directly to you, Josh, you have an eating disorder? No, he didn't. He didn't. He, um, and I guess one of the reasons why I, I liked him in that sense is there was no sense of accusation or 
any stress perpetuated from him. He was very much forward thinking, this is the direction that we're going from here. This is what you're going to do. And I was like, well, I guess I have to then. He's kind of telling me. Um, so, yeah, he never made me feel bad about myself. He only made me feel positive towards what my future could be should I just take on his very simple advice, like the advice that he would give to a 17-year-old, very simple. It wasn't complicated. It was eat this amount of food at this time, this time, and this time, train only for this long, do these sorts of exercises, and come back to me in, in a week and let me see how you're going. We'll change mm. everything. Um, so, yeah. It also sounds like to me in a time where you were feeling the least amount of control and a time where everything around you was stressful, you had someone come along and calmly say, relinquish control to me, I will show you the way forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, It was when I was at my lowest point that I needed someone who was both mentally, physically, spiritually strong and was able to build that strong connection. He he fulfilled the exact role that I needed to find at that time. So, yeah. In yourself. In myself, yeah. He was the outward manifestation of what you were looking for in yourself, which was, and your environment, a sense of calm and a releasing of control. Yeah. And I think what that enabled you to do by my very quick read on this is – let your guard down enough to see a new possibility to emerge and feel safe enough to reorientate and update that system, which was this belief that I can't cope unless I have control when you've just seen this alternative of a person who is this sense of stability, who has a sense of control, but is obviously wanting to share the load with you as opposed to you need to do this all on your own. And that would have been a massive relief. I think your quick read um, was very good. took me about 10 years to how many just now (laughs) putting those pieces together. So uh, well done, Mitch. That was good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's good to know. I mean, I have the luxury of um, doing this stuff for a while and, and, and your articulation makes it a lot easier because you're very coherent in what you're talking about in that um, this he, he had to have represented more than just good nutrition advice. He had to. I think anyone watching from the outside in could realize that because I'm sure people had told you to eat more or eat different and you could have read a textbook and nothing would have changed. There was something about this guy that represented more than just good advice. It was safety and calm. Yeah, and definitely. trust. Definitely. And I think I, I idolized the position that he held. I think in the, in the same way that an inspiring actor would look up to The Rock and want to do everything that The Rock did, I, I needed to, I wanted to emulate him. So I think he had, I guess, all of the things that I felt like I wanted for myself and, and the advice that he gave. I think it, as you said, I think it fulfilled that role that I needed. Um, but also, growing up mainly without seeing my dad much. I think he almost had like a fatherly influence. Not that he was, you know, much older than me. So if he's listening, I don't want him to think I'm calling him an old man. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think he he represented that really strong figure that I I was open to. I was, I was ready for. Mm. 
Yeah, the right timing. Sound like a lot of a lot of ingredients were right. In fact, like you just had this diagnosis, you just seen your mum upset. You didn't necessarily want to live this way anymore, but you needed an alternative. And this almost guardian angel kind of rocked up at the gym on the right day and said the right things. And some part within, of you underneath there heard it. Yeah, it was all within the same week. So that's you know pretty. I don't know if you can call it coincidental or. That's God shit right there. Just saying. <laughs> I mean, no offense to no one who doesn't believe in a higher power, but if that's not a higher power, I don't know what is. Um, <laughs> so, so what what do you think has been some of the the key self care tactics or strategies you've used to maintain wellness from that point? As selfish as it might sound, I filled my cup every day. Not, might not necessarily be first, but even as a father, I know that I'm going to be the best father I can be or the best husband that I can be if I do the things that fill my cup. So I do take care of myself each and every day. Um, I really, <laughs> I think a lot of people, especially parents, so if there are any parents listening, your whole life becomes about your children and, and taking care of your children, but you can only be the best role model that you need to be if you're actually taking care of yourself and and doing all of the things that you're eventually going to preach for your child who becomes an adolescent to do. Um, so for myself, I'm really, like you spoke about martial arts before, I'm very into the, the softer martial arts. So I, I every morning I start the day with some Qigong. Um, and that's actually Beautiful. been really beneficial. Um, I started that, to be honest, a few years ago when I was 24, I broke my back playing football and um, was told that you'll never play football again. This was the same time that we were trying for a baby. Um, so there was a lot of things going on at once and I thought this is the type of incident that's going to have any sort of predisposition to body dysmorphia coming back. This is, this is going to be it. This is going to be the, the mm. straw that broke the camel's back. I didn't know what to do um, and the stress took over pretty, pretty quickly having played sport from the age of you know, 4 to 24 um, and I don't even know how I stumbled upon it. I, I stumbled upon Eastern philosophy, Eastern tradition, started reading a lot into Buddhism, Taoism, not so much Confucianism, but a lot of them spoke Love. about the, Yeah, a lot of them spoke about the exact same things, which was that, I guess, Chinese yoga, that breathing and stretching, the Tai Chi and Qigong. And I started doing that every morning and I have been for going on almost four years now. And that is... That if, if you need to fill your cup to start the day, and I know a lot of people will think it's only for old people until you actually do it and you, you do it properly and you allow yourself to be open rather than just thinking the whole time, like this is a waste of time, this isn't doing anything. Just clear your mind, do 10, 15, 20 minutes of Qigong and tell me how you feel in a week if you do that every day. Mm. Um, so for me, um, that's the first step. I always, um, before my son wakes up, so I'll do that. I'll have a cold shower. So I guess a morning routine is what I'm getting to, a deliberate daily practice. Um, mm. And then I'll, I'll do some reading or some journaling. So usually reading something like the Tao Te Ching or the Wisdom of Buddha or it might be something that I'm really interested in, so neuroscience or nutrition or something completely left field like anthropology. Like I like to do a lot of reading, um, but I'll always have some form of journaling. So whether it's what am I grateful for today what does a successful day today look like or how am I going to be a positive influence for one other person today? Just just one of those points. I, I don't want to have a morning routine so long that it's unachievable, but something that's achievable for me. So usually it's about a 20 to 30-minute morning routine, probably more likely 30. Um, so I get up at 5.30 and that's what I do until 6 and then I usually have you know half an hour just to spend time with my wife before my son wakes up. 
So if I start every day like that and I fill my cup, I'm able to be the best Josh that I can be for myself and for other people and I'm able to retire to bed each night immediately at like 8 p.m. because I'm so trained by then, chasing after a two-year-old. Um, knowing that I've had a productive day, not necessarily productive in a, a monetary sense, but productive in I feel like I'm living in alignment with my meaning and my purpose pretty much every day. So, yeah. Dude, are we the same person? <laughs> like straight up we even speak the same way. We're into the same things. Dude, you're a legend. Uh, maybe that's narcissistic of me to call you a legend after saying that we're similar, but <laughs> fuck it, I'm doing it. Um, yeah, I'll claim it. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. And it sounds like the relationships in your life, like your wife, your your son, um, your son, right? Yeah. No, yeah. your daughter. Yeah, your son. Nah, Sorry, I um, wanted to make sure I got that right. No, and right. they they provide huge meaning and purpose in and of themselves. And it sounds like your study does as well. So there's connection, there's purpose in output. Um, there's the self-care that's kind of the maintenance. Uh, and obviously there was some type of catharsis that happened earlier on toward your healing journey around the time of this mentor where you shifted mindset toward genuinely accepting that it's okay to relinquish a bit of control. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, if, uh, for anyone that's struggling with, with control issues, um, perhaps manifesting in an eating disorder, what would you say to them and how would you encourage them to think alternatively around how this is manifesting? I think I want people to firstly reflect upon what it is they're doing and how they feel in any given moment. I think just don't, don't tune out your feelings. Think about what you're doing, why you're doing, what is your intention behind each thing that you're doing. And life doesn't have to be so methodical that everything has an intent. But if you're noticing a pattern or a habit that's maybe not serving you, start to take notice and start to take uh, about how you feel. What are you feeling in that situation? Why are you maybe doing what you are doing? And is that habit serving you? I think a really good analogy using the word serving, like if you went to a restaurant and the, the service was so horrible, they were always late, they were really rude, they always served horrible food, you wouldn't go back there. So why would you do something else that's not serving you in a positive way? Why would you yeah. have an unhealthy habit that is making you feel worse about yourself? So I think firstly, be mindful because that's the only way that you're actually going to notice that you may have a problem to start with. And when you do take notice, I think... Don't internalize it for three years and deny it like I did. Maybe talk to someone. It might just be a friend. It doesn't have to be a family member. It doesn't have to be anyone. I'm only speaking from my own experience. It doesn't have to be anyone who you think might be able to have control of you or over you or judge you. Someone that you're happy to openly share with. But I think, yeah, the first step is definitely be mindful. Think about your intentions. Think about your emotions that are driving your behaviors. Start to notice any habit loops that you have. And if you do start to notice a problem, don't judge yourself for it because if you think, oh, shit, I think there's something wrong with me, I'm doing this weird thing with my food, and then you judge yourself from that, you're fighting stress with stress. You're not going to come to a solution there. So maybe talk to someone. And I think a big thing for me that was really um, – it made it easy for me to relinquish some control over food was the – the realization that people weren't telling me to eat unhealthy foods to put on weight. They were just telling me to eat 
more of the healthy foods. So I could still, I guess, have some control over what foods I was eating. I just needed to increase the portion sizes. So I think if you try to go cold turkey, no control, is a recipe for disaster. But if you can start to take healthy steps, just micro steps, one step at a time. So it might be allowing yourself to eat a little bit of a bigger portion at a certain meal. Um, these small, simple steps, they add up to really big solutions. So don't try to cure, cure yourself at once, but start to do little healthful habits each and every day. And eventually you will feel much better. And feeling good is addictive. When you have so much energy and you're able to be yourself and interact with others and not fall asleep in class or behind the wheel of a car, whatever it might be, when you start to feel energetic and balanced and at peace and are able to genuinely enjoy being in whatever environment you're in, that becomes addictive and you'll no longer feel the need to micromanage every single thing that you do. So I guess be mindful, think about your intentions, recognize if anything might feel a little bit off. Talk to someone who you feel comfortable and who you feel might not actually judge you or make you feel bad for what you are doing and just start to take small steps. Small steps that do not stress you out because you don't want to perpetuate stress and become more stressed, but small steps that start to make you feel better, whether it's about yourself or just purely physically, energetically. And I think over time you'll become the best healthful version of yourself. Um, and yeah, I guess I want to stress too that you are not your condition. So if you have been diagnosed, your history does not have to be your future. Just recognize that that's something that you might have to sort of fight with a little bit, but eventually you will be able to observe that it is not you and that you can have power over whatever condition you have been diagnosed with and that opening up and being vulnerable and sharing your experiences with others can be helpful for both of you when you're authentic and it's not a sign of weakness, if anything, being vulnerable shows strength. Mm. Well said. I think particularly doubling back on your point that you know, don't worry about feeling shameful about this. It's just, let's just approach it with a sense of lightness and say, I can accept what I'm going through and I can also accept that it might not be helpful. I don't need to judge myself for it. I need to recognize that this is a superpower that's currently just gone beyond the point of helpful to unhelpful. If I can nip off the excess stuff that this is doing now that's actually starting to hinder my life and bring it back into a uh, threshold in which I can um, work with, then I can still have some of these attributes that are successful but not let them destroy me or take me down in the process. And I know that you've said a, a couple of times there that um, it doesn't need to have power over you, you can have power over it. I agree with that to some extent the only remix i'd put on that at least from my opinion is it doesn't need to have power over you you don't need to have power over it you just need to learn how to dance together so because i think otherwise it's this power war of like you're wrong no you're wrong no you're wrong and what i found is that when you look your demon in the eye and you really respect your opponent then you start to get into a flow state where you actually sometimes shift power, but you learn very well how to duck the more aggressive punches. And every now and then you give it a like, boom, fuck you, like back in your place. <laughs> um, but otherwise it, it is this dance and it is this salsa of really appreciating those parts of you that hurt, um, but no longer letting it 
lead the dance. Yeah, very well articulated. Yeah. I think I think the biggest way that I would sum it up or think about it is again that detachment and not detachment that it disappears, but detachment that you no longer let it have power over you. So if that's that symbiotic relationship and that that synergistic dance or flow or boxing match, that's definitely better than being the one that's allowing yourself to be the one that's dominated in that relationship. Totally, totally. That that's boundaries. Boundaries with our own demons, not just the relationships in our life. And um, and you're uh, just to clarify. I know that when you say detach, you're talking about it from an Eastern sense. And so, just to translate that to in how most people would see the word detach, detach. I think a lot of people see as apathetic or not caring or or surrendering in a bad sense. But actually, no. That's the way that Josh is referring to detachment. If I'm understanding correctly, is not clinging or grasping to something in which is becoming detrimental to your well-being it's letting in the spaciousness of it so that organically good things can emerge correct yes yeah yeah so it's not apathy it's actually caring but caring about everything equally as opposed to letting things take away um, aspects of your life and your health good chat man great chat is there, is there anything else um, you want to tell people? Where, where can people f- find you if they want to um, connect with you? So if people want to connect with me, very easy on um, Instagram. It's just at underscore Josh Wiggins. And then I also have a, a website, www.joshwiggins.org. And that's just essentially about my nutrition and mental performance coaching. Um, but easy mm-hmm. just through Instagram. I'm happy to talk to anyone about their stories if they feel comfortable sharing, which quite often people do. Um, I'm happy to, to be there and talk to you and not not one to offer advice, um, but to just hear you. Better listen. Yeah, yeah. correct. Awesome. And, and just for listeners, Wiggins is spelled W-I-G-G-I-N-S. Correct. N for Nelly. All right, mate. Well, really appreciated your time today and I look forward to uh, cheering you on from the sidelines and staying connected. My, my other doppelganger right here. <laughs> Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been an honor. Our pleasure. Thanks, Josh. 